If you have your Bible, you could open it to the 23rd chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 23. And this morning I want us to look together more closely at the cross of Jesus Christ and the strange happenings that took place there. Some very strange things happened while Christ was on the cross and then at his death, at the time of his death. And looking in Luke 23, I want to look closely at how both the centurion and the crowd responded to the things that they had seen. One commentary that I read this week called these, these strange, strange things God's sign language. God speaking through signs to the people who were witnessing the death of Christ. So I'm going to borrow his words and make the title of this sermon God's Sign Language. And I want you to read with me verse 47 and 48 of Luke 23. And then we're going to broaden our look a bit. But primarily, I'm wanting to see what this centurion said. And then the reaction of the whole crowd once they saw what the Lord had displayed for them. So verse 47 says, So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd came together to the site. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So let's pray and ask the Lord to bless what we've just read and what we will read. Father, we come to you this morning. We recognize that the subject that we will consider this morning is the greatest of subjects. To consider Christ upon the cross of Calvary, the cost that he was paying for our sin, and these strange things that happened while he hung there and as he breathed his last were greatly used by you in the life of this Roman centurion, a godless man, greatly convicting the whole multitude that had gathered there to watch. Father, I pray as we consider them again this morning that we would not leave unchanged. That we would either glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ unto our salvation. Lord, or that there might be some that though hearing the gospel again, rejecting it again, Lord, that you in grace would soften their hearts even yet. Lord, we pray for the conversion of all. We pray that you would indeed give us ears to hear. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. My hope as we go through these verses is that the Lord would once again bear witness to these things. And that he would induce a response from us as well. How can we not be affected by what we read concerning the happenings of Calvary? It was there that our Savior gave himself for us. 
It was there that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. You might have come in this morning aware of many problems in your life. Many things that have gone wrong, many things that need to be overcome. But let me tell you, biblically speaking, what is your greatest problem? Your greatest need. Your greatest need is to have a righteousness that God will accept. Your greatest problem is that you do not possess it. Nor can you produce it. You can do nothing to please God. You can do nothing that he will accept as the grounds for your justification or being made right with him. Nothing at all. Do what you will for as long as you will. God will not accept any measure of good works, no matter how great. God will accept nothing for your salvation but the shed blood of Jesus Christ applied to you by faith. Dressed in his righteousness alone. So take heart. Your greatest problem is your need of righteousness. But know that God in grace and mercy has provided it in the person of his son. He has satisfied his own justice. He has made payment. Much of understanding the gospel is to see Christ hanging on the tree in your place. We talk of substitution. You need to understand substitution. If you will be saved, you will have a biblical understanding of substitution. That means that Christ is punished for what you deserved. And you go free. Just as Barabbas was released to the crowd, he who was rightly condemned, being a murderer and an insurrectionist, yet the crowd wanted him released, Pilate released him, but took Jesus in his place, who was sinless and perfect, and in whom Pilate himself had found no fault. That's the substitution that you must understand if you would be saved. Christ in your place at Calvary. So I want to look, we've read these two verses, the centurion's response and the crowd's response. I want to look at the language just a bit, and then we're going to back up and and see some things together. We're also going to compare what both Matthew and Mark say about this in their Gospels. John does not mention this in his. Verse 47 simply says, So when the centurion saw what had happened. So we have to ask the question. What had he seen? What had he observed? It's not only said of the centurion, it's said of the whole crowd in verse 48. When they had come together to see the sight, what had they seen? And it's interesting here that the word that Luke uses for the translated in English for us sight means a spectacle or a theatrical show. They had come, as it were, to witness theater, to see a show. But what they saw so greatly affected them that they leave in a very unique way in verse 48 and 49. 
Here's what Charles Spurgeon says about the overview of what they saw. Listen to him carefully. He says, Earth never beheld a scene in which so much unrestrained derision and expressive contempt were poured upon one man so, unanim so unanimously and for so long a time. Something akin to this had never happened before and it would never happen again. Such derision and expressive contempt. Notice what else he says. It must have been so hideous to the last degree that they have seen so many grinning faces and mocking eyes and have heard so many cruel words and scornful shouts. This spectacle was so detestable that heaven could not long endure it. Christ upon the cross lasted just a few hours, but an eternity of salvation was accomplished there. This is true because what we're going to read in this 23rd chapter is fulfillment of what Isaiah would say concerning and prophesy concerning the suffering servant, particularly in his 52nd and 53rd chapters. Can I remind you of one verse in Isaiah 52, verse 14? Isaiah prophesied there that the body, the physical body of Jesus, would be so marred and affected that he would not be recognizable to be human. That's the price that the Son of God paid for you. That's the untold agonies that he endured for you. That is what he endured of his father to be considered sin so that you could be considered righteous. In the immediate context surrounding verses 47 and 48, what the centurion and the crowd saw, we back up into verse 44 and we read this. It was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Three hours of complete darkness. Not unusual in the span of a 24-hour day, but extremely unusual considering the timing. The sixth hour for a Jew would have been high noon. And so from noon till 3 p.m., darkness. You can't explain this by any act of nature. Some have tried to do so. Some have said it was a, a natural eclipse, but Passover tells us happens on a full moon, which renders an eclipse basically impossible, naturally speaking. The only explanation that can be given is that the Lord, God in heaven, darkened the sun for the space of three hours. But I don't want you to miss this or to lose this. There was something happening in that darkness. There was still redemption being accomplished in this darkness. For those three dark hours, Christ was hanging on the cross, fully aware of what was taking place. 
These three hours represent the greatest agony that any human has ever undergone, not just because of the physical pain of the cross, not just having been nailed to the tree, not just having the crown of thorns pressed into his brow, not just all of those external wounds that had been opened by scourging and whipping and beating, not just the spitting upon him, not just the mockery, but the fact that he had become the very essence of sin and his just and holy father in heaven was executing a holy and just vengeance upon him, the God-man, so that sinners like you and I could walk away free. This was hell on earth. And Jesus endured it. What agony. What shame. What suffering. And this Roman centurion stood there in the dark at the foot of the cross of Jesus taking it all in. The crowd who had come together to see a spectacle, to see a show, couldn't see it because God had drawn a curtain over it. Can you imagine, those of you who have lived during a natural eclipse of the sun, you know how strange and eerie it is for, in the middle of the day, for everything to go dark for just a few moments. Think of what it would have been to be at Calvary that day and to undergo not just a, a short few moments of complete darkness, but three hours of it. This is the first of what we'll call the strange things or the sign language that God is using. And this darkness speaks volumes both to the centurion and to the crowd who had come together. But that's not the only thing that happens. Verse 44 tells us the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened. And imagine that. The only explanation again is God the Father, the creator of the sun, dialed it down for a moment. Miraculous. The veil of the temple was torn in two. The centurion wouldn't have been privileged to see this, but nonetheless, this happened. But he also hears Jesus crying out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But if we look at the chapter as a whole, we rewind all the way back to the first verse, then we can get an even larger picture of what this centurion saw, what he witnessed with his ears, and why there was such a change in him. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 23, and before we, I suppose before we get there, I want to take you even further back and read another account of this same thing from Matthew's gospel. So if you look at Matthew 27, and as we read, note that what the centurion says according to Matthew is different than what Luke records him as saying. And so we take them together, not that they contradict one another, but that he said them both. Isn't that the easy way to deal with seeming contradictions in the scriptures just to believe both because they're both inspired of God? 
Well, if you're in Matthew chapter 27, I want to begin reading in verse 45, and I want you to see and listen to the strangeness of this day. Again, we're told, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, just as this darkness was coming to an end, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he said, translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is where Jesus dies of his own accord in his own time. It's important to understand the death of Jesus was a sacrificial death and it was all according to his own timing. He, his life was not taken. His life was yielded. His life was given. But here in verse 51, the strangeness of the day, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We read that in Luke. Here's a new detail. The earth quaked. Now remember this Roman centurion standing at the foot of the cross of Jesus. He feels the tremble. Another strange detail, and the rocks were split. It gets even stranger. After the rocks were split, graves were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Much conjecture, much going back and forth in commentaries as to who these bodies were. We just simply don't know. Could it have been some of the patriarchs? Could it have been those who had died more recently? We simply don't know. But what we do know is that when Jesus was resurrected, that these ones that had been raised then went into the holy city and appeared to many. And again, we meet up with the centurion in verse 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. We won't take the time to go to Mark. Mark records many of the same details. The only difference is how he records the centurion, what he says. And he just adds one word when he says, truly, this man was the son of God. We would say these are strange signs indeed. God speaking in a sort of sign language to those who were there, taking it all in. And is there any wonder why we're told that they were fearing Greatly. So go back with me, if you would, to Luke 23 and verse 47. Actually, I want to begin in the first verse because this is part of what the centurion had seen. The first thing that I want to do is trace the ferocity of the accusations made against Jesus. Notice the language 
And I'm going to skip through this rather quickly. I'll try to point out the verses to you. In verse 2 of the 23rd chapter, they began to accuse Jesus. And here's what they said. We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. The last is true, of course, but those first two are blatant lies. Jesus clearly taught that taxes should be paid to Caesar. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So they begin by making accusations. But skip down to verse 5. They become more fierce. But they were the more fierce saying he stirs up the people. And if you skip over again to the 10th verse, the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Why are they upping in their fierceness because Pilate is not hearing them? He continually says over and over, I find no fault in this man. And so they raise their accusation and they raise the manner in which they are making them until we get down into verse 18 and they all cried out at once saying away with this man and release to us Barabbas in verse 21 we find them shouting saying crucify him crucify him Verse 23, they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. So much so that at the end of the 23rd verse, it says that they prevailed. Pilate gave sentence that it should be just as they requested. And then we find this at the end of the 25th verse. He delivered Jesus to their will. Much of the will of man, the free will of man is talked about and should be talked about. And we need to try to understand it in a biblical balance. But can we just see what is said here? What did the free will of man do with Jesus? Crucified him of their own accord. Now, that's not the only thing that could be said, but it does come into play when you're talking about the free will of man. But back to the larger story. What did this centurion see? Notice he heard all of this. He heard all of these accusations and he saw the crowd grow more and more fierce against him. But he didn't only hear what they were saying. He would have been extremely privileged to hear what Jesus said. Luke doesn't record all of these, but you'll notice as you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are what theologians call the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. Jesus said seven different things. And it's, it's a great study. Maybe we'll study these in turn. But it's a great study to look at the things that Jesus said while on the cross. If we stay confined just to Luke, he heard this from the lips of Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He heard this from the lips of Jesus. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves. You can read the, the full account there in verses 28 through 31. 
Jesus heard the interaction, excuse me, the centurion heard Jesus' interaction with the thieves. Don't forget that Calvary positioned Jesus right in the middle of two rightly condemned thieves, both of them initially mocking him. But at some point in the events of Calvary, grace intervened in the life of one of the thieves. And in verse 39, we read one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed Jesus and says, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And that justly we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Then he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The centurion heard Jesus' response when he said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And then the darkness descends. But there's more that the centurion saw. He didn't just hear the conversations. He didn't just hear the accusations, nor did he just hear what Jesus said, he saw the sign that had been placed over Jesus' head, written in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, so that anyone that was there that day could plainly read what Jesus had declared of himself, that he was indeed the king of the Jews. And he was taking all of this in. We don't know that this centurion might have been, very possibly could have been, one of the ones responsible for securing Jesus to the cross. We don't know, but very highly possible, could this centurion have been one of the ones that spat upon him. He could have been one of the ones that struck him. He could have even been the one that pressed the crown of thorns down into the brow of Jesus. Let's speak about the centurion here for just a moment. Because what he says is totally out of character. A Roman centurion would have been in charge of a hundred soldiers. So he was a man of position, authority. But by being stationed at the foot of the cross of Jesus, he was also a stone-faced, seasoned killer. We don't know, but how many times had he stood at the foot of a Roman cross? Taking in all the sights and hearing the agony, the gasping for air. How many times had he been the one that went and broke the legs of those hanging on the cross to speed their death? How many deaths had he witnessed, but no death like this death? It had never gotten dark. The rocks were never split. The earth had never quaked. He had never heard rumblings of the veil of the temple being rent in two. He had never seen anything like this before. What he was privileged to witness, to use Paul's words in Romans chapter 3, he was a front row witness to God setting forth his son as a propitiation by his own blood. He watched it happen. And so when we get back to verse 47, this professional murderer, 
this skilled centurion, after taking in all of these sights, and I want to be quick here to give glory to God. This man didn't figure this out on his own. (laughs) He just didn't. This is what he says. When the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God. You can do a word study on that word glorify about 62 times in the New Testament. If you're reading the King James Bible, this word in the original is translated as glorified. Almost every one of those instances, it is used as an expression of worship and true worship to God. So he's glorifying God, and what does he say? According to Luke here, he says, Certainly, let there be no mistake. Verily, this was a righteous man. What he is saying just accords with what Jesus had said about himself. He's agreeing with it. So isn't it interesting that God in heaven used this seasoned killer of a Roman centurion to vindicate his own son. To speak these words into the hearing of all that had gathered. Now again, we appeal to Matthew and Mark where the centurion says, Certainly, truly, this was the Son of God. It's interesting that he had heard Jesus just a few moments earlier, a few hours earlier, if we follow the chronology. He addressed the God of heaven as Father. Father, forgive them. And then he says, truly, this was the Son of God. Or this man was the Son of God. We don't know what becomes of this centurion. We only know what he had learned and what had been revealed to him about Jesus after witnessing the agony and the suffering of the cross. History tells us, or perhaps I should say legend, if you read concerning this, and I don't present this to you as fact, But it's an interesting thought. History or legend says that he did become a believer. And our only appeal there is to early church history. But we have to stop where the scripture stops. The scripture doesn't tell us that. We know that what he said would certainly be in line with one whose heart was changed. One whose heart had been altogether made different because of his interaction and witnessing of Jesus' death. But one application that we can make without conjecture, one application that we can make with no guesswork at all, is how quickly things changed for him. How quickly he went from a mocking, sneering, spitting, beating soldier to one with complete awe and wonder makes the declaration certainly, truly, without a doubt, this is a righteous man being the very Son of God. I want you to take heart in this. 
take heart in the power of the gospel. I'm not here saying that this centurion is a believer and we'll see him in heaven. I don't know. I pray he is. We just can't speak to it. The scripture doesn't speak to it. But what we can say is that the stone cold can be quickly warmed. Those who look like there is no work of grace in their hearts at all in a moment can be changed. So parent, I want that to be of immense encouragement to you. If you see no work of grace in your children at all, know that God in his time can change it like that. There can be interest where there was no interest. There can be real declaration of truth where there once was not even any interest at all. This is the miraculous nature of the way God works and the timing of God. And I think we can also make this application. No one comes in close contact with Christ and leaves unchanged. For the good or ill. There seems to be another response altogether different than the one of this centurion in verse 49. This one regards the whole crowd. And notice carefully, I pointed this out already, but I don't want you to miss it. The whole crowd who came together to that site. And I want to paint just a bit of a picture here for you. We're not told that they brought their lawn chair, but they probably brought something like it. They were coming to watch a show. They were coming to be entertained. They were coming to glory in the fact that their voices had been heard by those in authority. They were coming to glory in the facts that their voices had prevailed. They had been granted their request. When they cried out, crucify him, crucify him, Christ had indeed been crucified. Their will concerning Christ had been accomplished. His lifeless body is now hanging on the tree. You would think that they would be glorying in that fact. But something altogether different is their experience in verse 49. The whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. This is a figure of speech that Luke uses to record for us the actions of those that had been completely overcome with guilt. Those who had witnessed something too great for them to see. Those who had been witness to that which they just could not explain. Like the centurion, they experienced the darkness. They saw the rocks split. They saw or felt the earthquake they saw the bodies of dead people raised. They saw all of these things. And then they heard, just as the centurion, Jesus say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then according to other gospels, they would have heard Jesus declare, it's finished. It's over. One commentary says this. Of, these, of this crowd. They came to witness the show, but they left with great feelings of woe. 
I think that's a great summary. They had been completely smitten by what they had seen. They had no explanation for it. And yet here perhaps they began to feel the weight of their conscience and the weight of guilt. Many of you know what that weight is like. It's an unbearable burden that you cannot get rid of, that you can't walk away from, you can't set it down every morning. It's there, you feel it upon you. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, it's the burden on his back that he cannot unloose. He can't reach back and untie it. He can't cut the rope. He can't do anything but walk around with this burden upon his back. Now I want to take you a few pages over. Fast forward through the Gospel of John into the early chapters of the book of Acts. Because this crowd in Luke 23 most likely is represented by the chief priests, the scribes, the rulers of the people who were crying out for the crucifixion of Jesus. You fast forward into the book of Acts now, into the second chapter, the day of Pentecost, when Peter is preaching. And he gives this spirit-inspired, spirit-helped history lesson in the form of a sermon. And he gets all the way over into verse... 36, and he says, Acts chapter 2, 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, it's not wrong of us to think that some of those at the foot of the cross, some of those who were, who were crying out for the crucifixion of Jesus, some of those who continued to raise their voices as that 23rd chapter went along, some of those whose cries became vehement, they were overcome with rage and fury. Some of those same men now were standing listening to Peter preach this sermon. And remember how they left Calvary that day beating their chests with guilt, beating their chests, having been completely overcome. Now add on top of that, they've heard Peter's preaching under the inspiration of the Spirit. And Peter says to them, let all the house of Israel know, assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. What's the reaction? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? In other words, they're saying here, we feel our guilt keenly. Yes, we recognize now that we are the responsible ones for the crucifixion of Christ. And let me hurriedly take you back to this same chapter in the 23rd verse where Peter says this about Jesus. Yes, Christ was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. In other words, this was God's plan all along. He is the author of this plan of salvation, but notice he holds those men who were crying out for the crucifixion of Jesus also responsible. In the 23rd verse, he says, You have taken by lawless hands and have crucified him. 
And now they're cut to the heart and they're asking, what do we do? We're guilty. Peter says to them, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you, your children, and to all who are afar off. As many as, as the Lord our God will call. Peter had a response to their question. First of all, he said to them, repent. Return, turn from it. Acknowledge your sin before the Lord. Confess it before the Lord. And then be baptized. If we apply the analogy of Scripture to this verse, and that simply means if you interpret this verse by the rest of Scripture, what Peter is calling them to do here is repent and believe and be baptized. In my estimation, one of the clearest teachings of Scripture regarding believers' baptism, though there are many more. Notice they are to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Again, applying the analogy of Scripture to this, baptism does not save you. Baptism is not a miracle in the sense that if you just get in the water, then all is well. You could be baptized every day for the rest of your life in this baptistry right here and not be saved. Baptism is an ordinance, one of the two given to the church by Christ. It's an ordinance being a picture, a visible expression of an inward reality. Baptism perfectly pictures what has happened in the heart of a believer. You've died, you've been buried, you've been raised to newness of life. Baptism is important, it's something that every believer should submit to in obedience to the Lord, but it's not what saves you. Believing that Christ was your substitute on the cross making payment for your sins and giving you a righteousness that you don't have and can't produce, that's what saves you. And at the moment of that belief, at the moment of your putting your trust and faith in Christ, you are justified in the sight of God. Baptism is just a sermon you preach in visible form without words to everyone watching as to what has happened to you. And this is Peter's instruction to those who had been smitten in their conscience by guilt over crucifying Christ. And let me tell you something. Please hear what I say to you. If you had been at the cross of Jesus, you very well would have been calling out for his death too. If he hadn't drawn you to himself, you would have been spitting in his face and rightly condemned All of us are in need of the gospel. 
No one stands outside of the need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The most moral, upstanding person you know, if they are not in Christ when they die, will suffer the eternal punishment of hell. And only a just and holy God could be just in condemning one to such an eternity. As I conclude, I want you to think a little further with me about what we read in Luke 23 about the crucifixion of Jesus. Psalm 45 tells us that he was, Jesus, the fairest of the sons of men. That being so, the fairest of the sons of men gave himself for the foulest of men. And he did so willingly. The prince of heaven humbled himself and came as a servant to die the death of the cross. To bear its shame, its scourging, to be placed between two thieves. He who once enjoyed full equality with God set all of that aside and placed himself in this position for the salvation of his people. We could also say it this way, the hell of three dark hours endured by the one man secured the endless light of eternity for a vast multitude. Would you please think on that thought with me? The hell of three dark hours endured by Christ secured the endless light of eternal life for a vast multitude. Thank God Christ endured those three dark hours for my poor, wretched soul. And because he endured those three dark hours, I now have the great privilege and benefit based upon my belief in him to have an endless eternity of light. I'm going to close just as I opened with words of Charles Spurgeon. Please hear what he says. He says, oh, take heed, you sinners. I Take heed, I pray, and be changed this day by grace, lest you be changed by and by by terror. For the heart which will not be bent by the love of Christ shall be broken by the terror of his name. If Jesus on the cross does not save you, then Christ on the throne will surely damn you. If Christ dying is not your life, then Christ living shall be your death. If Christ on earth be not your heaven, Christ coming from heaven shall then be your hell. Which will you have? Will you have Christ? Or will you have your own self-will? Will you be forever changed? And make the declaration of the centurion, certainly, this is a righteous man, the very Son of God. And then add, I must have him, else I die. Or will you again abuse the grace of God and leave here unchanged? God forbid you do that. If you would but come to Christ, he would receive you. It's very simple. If you will come to Christ, he will not turn you away. 
if you will humble yourself, cast yourself upon him, and know all of my righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. I must have the righteousness of another. And he will save you. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the things that we have seen. Even though we've only heard read, Lord, I pray you've given us a spiritual eye to see these things. Help us to be as the centurion, to take them all in and make a sound declaration concerning the Son of God. Father, I pray that if we have been cut to the heart by the guilt of our own sin, that you would shine the light of the gospel of Christ into that dark place, make all his glories known, that you would make application of the blood of Christ by your spirit to every soul who comes believing, who comes humbly, who comes repenting. May Christ receive all the glory, for he's done all the work. May Christ receive all the praise because he's done all the bleeding. May he receive the preeminence because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. May he receive the highest praise because we know the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father in heaven, let none get away. Let none leave without Christ. We pray, we ask of you, because we know you're merciful. We know you're gracious. We know you're full of truth. We know you're long-suffering and not willing that any should perish. Father, we pray, even as we sing this morning, that almighty love would arrest men and women, completely overtake them. Those that came here this morning with no interest, with no idea of your goodness, that you would completely break in upon them. Show yourself to be who you are. We ask it for Christ's sake. We ask it for the good of those who are without you. We ask it so that your kingdom will come in more glory here on this earth. We ask it for the good of your church. We ask it, Lord, simply because it accords with grace. In his name we pray, amen.